Hello. Hello. Welcome to Friendly Anarchism. Uh, this is Catherine, and you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah. Uh, my name's Daniel. Um, just like a quick history, or? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so I've been a activist in Eugene Springfield, Oregon for like 15 years, doing various things. Uh, I actually uh, worked with Catherine. We worked together on um, a series of workshops about uh, strategic nonviolent direct action. And that mm-hmm. was, uh, this is like the year anniversary for it like the first is. one. It is, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Because we did a four, it was a four week class leading up to the inauguration. So. Yep. Yeah. And I think our, our last one was about this time. So anyway, so happy year anniversary. And that went well. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, and uh, I'm uh, a communist, uh, and an atheist, uh, and Jewish, mm-hmm. uh, and sexless. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so yeah, I have a multiplicity of things, um, and but I'm certainly involved in uh, yeah local activism in a couple different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fun that we're friends because <laughs> it's um, we're pretty different. A lot of those things. Yeah. And also, uh, kind of how, um, uh, so we, we met mm-hmm. um, because you were doing a class, uh, a morning class at um, the uh, Our Revolution with the Bernie Sanders folk Yeah, um, that uh, I was very interested in. And uh, so we did some Our Revolution stuff for a bit. Uh, and also, uh, I have a bit of history with uh, the same Quaker meeting that you've been going to. That's right, yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, I remember that. I mean, I saw, saw your mom there a few times. Mm-hmm. So you have some kind of Quakery roots. You grew up with Quaker stuff around. I did not. You did not? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, I, the first time I went to a Quaker meeting was when um, I was in college, when oh, I was okay. uh, 20. Mm-hmm. And um, that was... Um, I wasn't finding a lot of, like, um, people to talk to in mm-hmm. college. I, I wasn't feeling like I was, it was at Lane Community College, mm-hmm. so it wasn't like, you know, the, the university thing. But I was feeling a little isolated, and I was trying to figure out about, you know, groups I could t- contact with. And my parents, uh, both of whom at different times, had worked with Quakers during the Vietnam War right. for um, conscientious objector training. And so they said, oh, I, we think there were some Quakers in town, but they never went. They just kind of knew about it so uh yeah uh i went uh meeting and had a very nice experience and went there for several years um and i'm still in contact with a number of people there yeah there's a number of jewish quakers yep yep i don't know if there's a fun acronym for it like uh pagan quakers or quagans yeah and i think there's one for buddhist pa- Qu- uh jubus is the, Jubu. the is the jewish buddhists <laughs> Jude- <Jubu's is> the <laughs> Is that is there a fun Quaker Jewish one? Uh, Jukers. Uh, I don't know. I'm not feeling good about that. I think that needs some workshopping. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I was really interested to hear about you being ace. Yes, asexual. Asexual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I've never met anybody who is asexual or at least openly oh. mm-hmm. asexual before. So. Um. So the um. It it took me. A long time, literally speaking, to realize it. Growing up, um, there was, I just, I just, it just never happened for me. Where, like, you know, there's kind of the typical adolescence thing. It's like, oh, I notice all my friends are, you know, uh, getting into uh, girls and stuff. And it just, 
the best way I put it, I was interested in the experience, but it, but the, the sexual desire was something I was not feeling. Mm-hmm. And kind of like, is that, you know, so people were talking about stuff that I, I wasn't connecting with. Um, and that just continued to be the case. And for uh, a while, uh, you know, up through my um, 20s, uh, I just thought, like, maybe, kind of vaguely, maybe there's something wrong with me, and, like, I should get that checked out or something. Mm. But it didn't feel super urgent. It was just something I had in the back of my mind, but I still, you know, have romantic interest mm-hmm. in people. Um, and it wasn't until um, I was I was at the University of Oregon um, at a union strike, of all things, mm-hmm. just helping the, the, the strikers. I was a part of the union. And I was reading the student paper when I was on a break, and they their the front page student paper thing was an article about uh, asexual students at the university, and I was reading it, and every quote from one of the A students was like, "Wow, I could have said that." Uh, so I kind of decided with the paper in my hand, I guess I'm asexual. I mm-hmm. should probably figure out what that means. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, and I'm still doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was only four years ago, mm. um, and. Um, like just a couple months ago, I I met a, f- a few other uh, local asexual people, mm-hmm. uh, and we've been having these nice little informal social meetups. Um, but the the experience of being able well, that's something I have a lot of experience with because I've done it my whole life. I, I just didn't know right. that. But um, what other people's experiences with being asexual are is something I'm still learning. Mm-hmm. Um, what other people. Um, what it means to be asexual, both, like, culturally and then, like... So one of the first things I have is, like, oh, I'm queer, I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> is, is there, should I do something? Right. And <laughs> should I do I, something like what? And I, fa- I found, uh, mostly uh, through negative experience, I mean, like, lack of experience, but, like, there aren't any spaces locally. Mm, yeah. Uh, there's very few anywhere... Um, in the the physical world and online, there's a few, mm-hmm. and they're nice, um, but it's it's one of the more common asexual experiences. Like I don't know any other ace people, like, mm-hmm. and I want someone to communicate stuff with, and just like, and it's one thing to have an online community, but just someone you have in your life where you can share things with and just um, be sympathetic with is is really important. And I hadn't realized how important. Until this ace group, we just sort of found each other online. Um, it was more luck than anything. And just the first time, we felt like, wow, we are really connecting. And it's very strange. Because oh. <laughs> we didn't know uh-huh. that this was something we needed so much. Oh, yeah. Totally. Um, and so, in terms of activism, because I always think of everything in terms of activism, <laughs> uh, creating an ace space is something I want to do, but I don't know how to start. And I've been trying aggressively to find, like, the people who've been putting on pride stuff in the area or local groups to like, hey, uh, maybe we should have a, an, an ace thing going on. Um, but they aren't particularly interested. And again, until recently, I haven't even known any other asexual people. It isn't like I can get a group together and say we as a group are interested in mm, having yeah. a spot in your community. Um, so that's something, you know, and, and the group I'm with right now, because I don't want to force them on things. Then, you know, right now it's a social thing, and that's cool. But maybe we'll go in that direction. But for me, growing up, if I knew asexuality was a thing, and not just like, you know, a biological term for <laughs> single-cell organisms, but like a thing that people actually experience, <laughs> uh-huh. and that there's, you know, um, 
you know, things to share and support instead of feeling like I was broken for mm. you know, most of my life. Yeah. Um, if there was that kind of community where I could talk to people and I just knew it was a thing so I could just learn more and decide if that fit me or not, that would have been enormously helpful. Um, and so trying to create, like, the online spaces, they're there, but people have to go and look for it. So trying to create a community space where people um, could, uh, could just find it and hear about it and then think about because one of the weird things about being ace is it's it's a lack of a feeling with other sexual identities you know something's up because you're feeling these strong feelings toward someone or some folks <laughs> um and ace is it, it, it's the lack of strong feelings and that's something it does have an impact but it's a little hard to pin into and asexuality is like acknowledged identity is so new there isn't even language mm. to communicate it interesting with um yeah. I just saw on, I think it was an anarcho-feminist page, someone saying LGBTQIA, the A doesn't stand for ally. Mm -hmm. And was like, I actually didn't know that. I was like, oh, it's, it's asexual, right? Because um, I, yeah. Yeah. And so the, the, the exact history behind the A, I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, but for a while, um, it's supposed to meant. My, my understanding of the history is that um, oftentimes in the past it has meant asexual, uh, but that gets forgotten. Hmm. Uh, and so there are, uh, like I was in uh, Seattle this summer um, for, um, or not Seattle, I was on Spokane, and I happened to go to their big uh, gay pride festival, and they had L LGBTQA+, and their thing, so I thought, oh, cool. Uh, so as an experiment, I went around with um, ace playing cards in my hat ah. <laughs> and trying to get reactions out yeah. of people. And not one person said, um, oh, you must be asexual. Um, it was always, the assumption was I was an ally. Mm. Um, and when I asked, so is that what you thought the, the A meant in the LGBTQA? I said, yeah, what else would it mean? Um, and that's, I'm not especially angry about that because there was also no ace representation at their hundred some booths they had um or from what i could tell there wasn't any there wasn't any like ace group or representation in the organization um and so that they thought meant allies is reasonable right um but that's part of the frustration is there seems to be this cycle of forgetting that there's ace people hmm. and then because there's no recognition that this is a space that where ace people are welcome mm -hmm. then asexual people don't show up for it right and then we oh, don't meet yeah. each other and then we don't meet each other and then it's really hard to make an organization with one person yeah or like you know like can't you have a space for me by my lonesome just my <laughs> own little corner over here <laughs> that's not and and yeah. i don't know and that's a bit much to ask for an organization, an existing organization. It's like, I am just this one person, can I have representation? Um, it's a bit... Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so trying to break that cycle is something I would like to work on, but it's it, um, it's been difficult. <laughs> yeah, you think of sexual orientation as sort of non-sexual being a sexual orientation, I guess, is for people... Yeah, it's, it's an orientation of sexuality. Mm -hmm. But it is, yeah. 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 Like you said, it being a, a, a lack, a, a, a negative, like a non-thing as opposed to a thing makes it harder for people to see mm -hmm. as 
but then it's also was harder for you to see yeah. because it's a lack of a thing. Right. Right. It's interesting. I mean, that, that was very much my own experience. And, it, it, and But if there were groups or organizations that, um, you know, had just asexual in the name, I mm-hmm. think even that would have helped, like, made me think, oh, this is a thing a person can it's actually a thing. be. thing, yeah. It's yeah. Like, exists. You exist. Yeah. Just being validated in your existence is Right. Nice. I didn't even know I needed to be validated. Right? You just, <laughs> but you just felt broken. That's, right. You know, that's awful. I mean, it's a really big part of culture, especially sort of when that mm-hmm. those formative that formative age, like middle school, high school, yeah. people are sex crazed. So then it's sort of just something that you yeah, just totally went over my head. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I kind of noticed it was happening, but it was it wasn't something. And then, like in my peer group, it wasn't something to share my experience. I mean, we're all a bunch of nerds, so it's not like we were dating that much, anyways. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah. Um, and then, like, you know, in just meeting with some other ace people for the first time in person, um, the number of things we had to talk about where it's, it's not any one thing. It's just, like, a gazillion things in culture mm-hmm. and even kind of an attitude. Like, I'm still not sure exactly what was happening, but we just clicked really good. Well, even though we were pretty different people. Yeah, yeah. It's inter- that bond is interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even things that aren't expressed or understood by culture is are real, you know? Like yes. the like the trans experience, it's like even if you never come out as trans, you are trans. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And it has it affects the way you interact with the rest of the world, even if you're unaware on a conscious level. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So it's sort of a similar thing. So it must have been really interesting that moment when you realized that it's a thing, you know. I remember mm-hmm. I had a, and it, I'm glad that it was a positive moment for you, realizing yes. it was a thing. Like, you had a, a newspaper with, like, a good, like, it was a positive. Right. You know what I mean? My first interaction mm-hmm. with being bisexual, I was, like, looking it up online, and I found a forum, uh, like, a queer forum. I was looking for it, and it was just just continuous shitting on bisexuals yeah. by lesbians. Just huge, huge, that was my first first introduction was this forum that was just like incredibly biphobic and that was damaging so i'm i'm just Mm -hmm. really so it's so it's so great that there are projects like whoever decided to put that article together and write Mm -hmm. that you know what i mean i love when those like little seems like a little thing but it just like completely changed your life like one person's like i'm gonna write an article in a student newspaper about this and it completely changed yeah your life you know Completely changed, a bit of an overstatement, but it certainly improved it. Yes. <laughs> um, and the so and, and so what you described. Uh, so for more, most sexualities outside the the cisnormative stuff, um, what you described is very common. We're like, oh, you're a weirdo, and that's bad in some form. Asexuality, like. Um, and so, like, I spent a long time like reading stuff and looking through things. Um, and like a lot of times when like, it, it, you know, there's like a confrontational interaction, this is, a, uh, the confrontational person is just learning that there's a thing called asexuality for the first time mm. and they don't even know what to make of it. So it's, that's another thing that I've been kind of struggling with is for, um, all other orientations, both sexual and gender, um, there is like as a active persecution, Whereas not having sex in some circles is like, you know, I'm a living saint or something. <laughs> uh, I mean, they're jack-offs too, but... <laughs> and. Yeah. Uh, um, but the um, 
the the lack of persecution because we, we we can't go to a group and say like you know we need emotional support for you know being shit on really i mean it, it's, it's kind of the case but it's a bit, bit vague and it's more like you know not having sex is a uh, a social stigma and you're less of a person if you're not having that but that's only it's basically all, all already already targeted people who want to be having sex but aren't people who don't want to have sex at all no one knows what to make of us <laughs> i would i mean i would say it's probably harder than you're giving yourself credit for because it is such an like an important part mm-hmm. of how our how especially in america we seem sort of like obsessed with mm-hmm. sex and a lot of the media and stuff has there, has how you view media changed after realizing that asexuality is a real thing and that you maybe your your orientation affects how you think of popular culture well already like when i was in freaking middle school a game i played when watching commercials is how is sex being sold in this commercial (laughs) um and very dry yeah um and it was just amusing and like you know in films and stuff if there's a lot of you know if there's a particularly heavy sex scene or if there's a lot of it i you know close my eyes or something um and i i have it easier than some but all right i don't want to get too ahead of myself so but so, so uh, by realizing my identity, it's given me permission to feel this way mm, instead mm-hmm. of like, ooh, there's something wrong with me that I can't enjoy this film. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's like, no, that's just who I am. That's fine. With other asexual people, though, who are actually sex repulsed, it's much more difficult because mm. it's basically impossible to escape sexual imagery. Mm, um, yeah. And they're, um, and you know, for people who makes them actually, like, physically uncomfortable or anxious. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's a real issue, and they really need a space. And it's more like, um, and they, they're they going to have an even harder time, you know, self-advocating. So because I'm in a, I, you know, I could, I can tolerate that kind of stuff. I, I feel that I'm in a better position than some people to actually create a space, which is part of why mm-hmm. I want to do it. Mm-hmm. Um it seems like it can be really isolating then. Yes. And pretty paralyzing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, especially, again, like, I have the privilege of having a pretty easygoing family. I mean, here I am. I'm 33 years old, not married. I haven't had a long-term relationship. Not a problem. But people who grew up in families where you're expected to marry young and who are expected to, you know, have a large family, um, there are totally asexual people who are married and have kids. Um, and the degree of that varies. And there's, there's actually, so asexuality is actually this, like, within that, there's this large spectrum. So there are people who do feel sexual identity to particular people. And there's terms for that, and it's actually quite varied. So there's some people who are married and have kids, and they were fine with the process. Mm-hmm. And there are other people who are like, this is just what I have to do. Yeah. Um, and there are certainly people, certainly in uh, certain religious traditions, where not enjoying sex is actually the expectation. <laughs> so maybe they've done... A little bit better. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but actually, they haven't done better because I've, I've seen people from that and they don't know if their sexual orientation is because that's just who they are or because they were traumatized growing up. Mm, interesting. And they don't even know what to do. Like, is this an identity I should embrace or is it something I need to fix? Well, I mean, that sounds sadly similar to the stigma that a lot of gay people went through yeah. that's like you're gay because you were abused mm-hmm. you know and so it's, it's so having asexuality be understood as an orientation is really important mm-hmm. to help people be able to differentiate yeah you know? and and being having people there to discuss uh in person 
like, you know, I, I'm asexual and comfortable with that, so, like, ask me questions and see if, like, mm-hmm. this is your experience or not. Yeah. Being able to have that kind of support. Um, and right now, that's basically non-existent, except in a couple cities. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. It's a thing. And I, I, I honestly wish I had more to talk about in terms of, like, politics and stuff, but it's, 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 it's new to me. Now, there's been this site called... Uh, AVEN, Asexuality, Visibility, and Education Network, which has been around since 2001. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're kind of the go-to place. They have a few forum, huge forum, which is very active. And they've even been getting resources together to do surveys because no one even knows how many asexual people there are. Mm. Um, it is not something uh, really well-researched. There's been some surveys, but they've been participatory. Um, and even defining asexuality has only recently become, like, there are now terms that people can consistently use mm-hmm. uh, to describe their experience. The development of language is really an interesting thing. I, I'm really interested in the development of language, so... But I actually don't have much to say about it on the, at this moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about is, in radical spaces, the the relationship between sexuality and radicalism... Mm-hmm is a really interesting and fraught one. Yep. You know, so you, <laughs> where there's often a feeling that in order to be a radical, you have to be really sexually active or vibrant or, really, you know, mm-hmm. intense, you know? Um, and that's not always true. I think that's changing a lot, especially with the younger generation, but there's definitely mm-hmm. been, generally speaking, like a, a strong tie between, like, crazy sex stuff and being a radical person and I know people that are they're not asexual or anything but they're mm-hmm. not that comfortable with sex and mm-hmm. then that be, and then they're uncomfortable in radical spaces and so like it's a problem not just for people who are asexual and like having an understanding in general that sexuality is very different for different people and like people are allowed to have different feelings and uncomfort with it mm-hmm. and that like the only way of being radical is not just by being totally comfortable with sex is mm-hmm. is as a different viewpoint that I think um, asexuals could really bring to the table and in a way mm-hmm. that could help more people feel comfortable in radical spaces too you know maybe um I, I've certainly noticed what you're talking about and there's uh, particularly in communist and anarchist circles, um, there's a mixing uh, between um, uh, activist business and uh, uh, personal relationships, um, and you know, and there's at, and the connection between um, uh, oppressive politics and government and oppressing sexuality of any kind, but mm-hmm. particularly non-cisnormative kinds, uh, is really apparent, mm-hmm. <laughs> and much ink has been spilled on that. Um, so uh, I have understood, like, when people, you know, are, you know, talking about their, their personal lives during, you know, political stuff, or, like, I've been invited to orgies <laughs> because of people I've been activizing <laughs> with. Uh, I even went to one. <laughs> Uh, and that was before I knew I was asexual. I, I've never tried this before. Maybe I'll try this. Maybe I'm super poly and didn't know it. Yeah. <laughs> it was not my thing, as it turned out. Um, Very open-minded. Yeah. Um, but there... I don't know. Maybe. Um, again, I'm, I'm just still figuring this stuff out myself. Um, but 
I, I can certainly see one extreme end of things. It's like if, uh, you know, someone, I'm not sure I've ever met anyone like this before, but like hypothetically kind of the position where if like, if you are not open to our things sexual, then you are not properly woke. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a thing. It that's, is a thing. It's okay. It's gross. I, yeah. It's for me, it's interesting now because doing the Christian thing, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is new for me, mm -hmm. pretty new, and then having this Christian leftist podcast, and I'm very sex positive and like very open about sex and sexuality, and then realizing that's like there are people that are really uncomfortable with this, and it's like, oh, how do I, especially people that I'm sort of talking to from a Christian community mm -hmm. that are coming in to listen to my podcast, and it's like, it's being sensitive to people's comfort level but also being true about my just, like, radical mm -hmm. honesty. And I think that talking about sex openly is important, mm -hmm. you know. The, so. the radical honesty is, I think, the key thing. Um, because I, I, I trained myself a little bit, but it wasn't too hard. It's just like, okay, so this is a person sharing their experience. And, like, or this is a part of their life they're inviting me to. That's really nice. Hmm. Um that I don't want a part of it, or I even feel a little squicky about it. Uh, that's me, and I, I now have permission to feel that way. Mm -hmm. So I'm, and but it's, but there's the tension is like, um, either they, uh, some other person is being so sexually aggressive that's making me feel uncomfortable, and not even wanting to be in that space anymore, or on the other side, people who, um, for various reasons, not even necessarily because they're asexual. Uh, are uncomfortable with a lot of discussion of um, sex or, you know, uh, uh, sexuality. Mm -hmm. That's a tension there. Um, the On the asexual side, the thing to be most aware of, um, if, say, there's a person in your group who's ace, is they might be one of those people where uh, uh, sex and sex discussions uh, give them anxiety. Mm-hmm. For okay. whatever reason, and that's something to check in on, and that's something that my friends have been very good about. Um, and um, um, I suppose my comrades too. Oh, that's another. But yeah. So, and then the other thing is, but you, you. So you said that you're the first. I'm the first open ace you've met. Uh, you may have well met at other asexuals. Mm -hmm. um, and it's part of it is like I actually like kind of want to be aggressively open. Mm -hmm. It's a little weird finding op the opportunity to do so. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, like what we'll talk about a little bit later, the, this, this decolonizing Judaism group, mm -hmm. uh, they're a great example of liberated left, sexually le liberated leftist folks. It's cool. And like uh, everyone else is queer too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, in, in wonderful profusion. And I just haven't had the opportunity to like, I am too. Because at the moment, mm. I certainly present as, like, the only, uh, you know, heterosexual, <laughs> cisgendered person there. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of not. Right. Mm -hmm. But I don't know when... I just haven't figured out how to say that. Right, yeah. Um, or even if I should, I don't know. It just it doesn't, my, 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 my joke is being asexual doesn't come up very often. Ah, 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 ah. A plus. Yes. <laughs> A plus. <laughs> um, so that's the other, like thing that I'm still figuring out is like the main thing with being asexual my point in terms of activism I want to be visible but actually like finding the moment to moment opportunities to be visible is weird well it's such a when it's such a personal thing you know yeah yeah, yeah. well it's, it's almost like I mean it's just 
when you bring up, I don't have sex. <laughs> I know. It's so <laughs> I don't know. When people talk about queer Like stuff. you're watching a movie together, it's like, I don't do that. <laughs> I mean. I, da, da, da. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I, don't. <laughs> I For the. I feel like there are. There are types of queer that are less accepted by the queer community as a whole. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, like, asexuality yeah. is one of them, and then yep. bisexuality, there's yep. a lot of biphobia. And so I feel, I know, um, I don't want to, like, compare the experiences too much, mm-hmm. but I understand the feeling of being like, oh, people are being openly about being queer, but I don't feel like I can step into that conversation mm-hmm. because it's like, am I, I, it's like I feel uncomfortable even being, saying openly that I'm queer, even though I'm obviously queer, because it's mm-hmm. like I've been told that I'm not, like, a real queer you know what I mean? Like, you yeah. know, like I, it's like I'm not like a, a I'm not a real query queer queer. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's like and it's my like in my understanding, this so with bisexuality, it's different because there's an there's a narrative already out there that bisexuality isn't a thing uh, for various things, and there there's um, it would not be unreasonable for you to expect hostility hmm. if, if if you came open uh, mm-hmm. um, with asexual. That hasn't been my experience. Again, I haven't opened up that much, but, you know, also hearing from other people's experiences, the vast majority of the time is just like, I don't even know what that is. There's no Mm. hostility. There's just um, a series of awkward questions, all of which always involves, do you masturbate? (laughs) (laughs) Um, but, But in terms of hostility, that's not something that commonly we have to expect. I understand, though. I mean, it's othering, though, to yes. be something to, to openly say, like, I'm something that you're not going to understand, mm-hmm. and I'm 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 going to put myself out there as different. Like that's yeah, that's hard, you know. And it's also again such a minor thing. Like I, okay, yeah, I could ignore being asexual for the most part. Again, that's my experience. Some people's it's a little harder, um, but and it's something like I'm not actively persecuted for or anything like that, and. It almost subconsciously feels like, oh wait, I'm special too. Mm-hmm. I'm not actually sort of. A, a yeah, bit. I might be a a, a white, you know, uh, you know, uh, heteroromantic male, but you know, I'm I'm still queer. It's sort of the <laughs> oppression Olympics. Yes. Thing. Yeah, and yeah. I will always come in last. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, you know, good. Yeah. But but that's the, that's the problem is then feeling like you don't have a right to your own experience, right? Though, you know, because you do you still everybody still has a right to their own experience. It's just mm-hmm. how how that interacts with your understanding of other people's experience, which what you're mm-hmm. saying, like because you I mean you have a right to be part of the LGBTQA and say mm-hmm. that you're queer and it like, sort of like that feeling of being that that's a really difficult thing in the radical community in general is the um, sort of feeling guilty for your problems when mm-hmm. other people have it much worse. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's like, well, we, we still have a, we still, our feelings are still valid, you know, and the way to have enough space for the empathy and feeling for everybody else's is to at least have ours acknowledged. So like these like group, mm-hmm. you know, having an ACE group is like, oh, I, with my ACE people, like I have my, I have been valid I yeah. have acknowledgement, mm-hmm. and then it doesn't become a, like, you know. Yeah, and mm-hmm. it's really nice. Maybe we'll figure out how to do that with other people. Yeah, yeah. It's, that's, I mean, yeah. that's just a continuous struggle is mm-hmm. sort of, like, understanding how to um, be true to ourselves and also stay humble yep. in our experience. Yeah. So I think you're, I think you're doing good. 
Yeah, I'm I, I'm no longer depressed that it's it's the the to make the the effort to make a public group hasn't really gone anywhere. Mm. Um, I feel like I've good made good efforts. I've now identified why it's actually difficult. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the <laughs> um, first. So I'm just you know waiting for opportunities basically while I'm doing other stuff. Yeah, that's cool. I'm glad you found some people. That's great. Yeah, I mean that's the first start. Mm-hmm. An affinity group, anywhere from two to two people is enough. Yep. It's no time for revolution. Yep. Do you want to talk about decolonizing Judaism? Oh, yes. Go for it. Yeah. Uh, So decolonizing Judaism, um, it's not really a public group. Um, It's all right to talk about, but it's something we actually, like, initially said. So it only started, like, in November. And this is being recorded uh, uh, New Year's. And um, I was actually, it was, uh, the group was recommended to me by a mutual acquaintance. So I, I, I hadn't known any of these people before. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, you were the mutual acquaintance, weren't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, so I grew up with my primary identity being Jewish. Um, but we didn't go to synagogue. And I never considered myself religious Jewish. Um, and so there's a tension there where, like, I feel culturally the culture I most identify with and, like, want to be a part of is Jewish, but the religious stuff, um, I'm also atheist, so that's a barrier, and just the rituals, particularly now that I'm an adult and there are things I never grew up with, it's a little hard to explain, but there's, uh, a language and way of being kind of a shared history with other Jewish people that I really connect with. Mm -hmm. Like, even if I'm just, like, you know, momentary thing, it's like, ooh, th- this is, you know, someone that I feel, you know, a par- part of the in-group with. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a problem because the in-group, the easiest way to meet them is participating in stuff that does absolutely nothing for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, this, is, it turns out, is not an uncommon experience, especially with millennial-aged uh, Jewish people. And so most in the group are, uh, people in the group are going to university, but not all. Some of the folks are closer to my age. Um, and, uh, they met each other, uh, mostly through activism. Um, there's a number of people interested in the Neighborhood Anarchist Collective. Um, and there's people involved in, uh, campus activism stuff. And they basically, while they were doing these things, they also bumped into each other and realized, oh, wait, we're also, like, secular Jews, um... And But the main thing connecting everyone, the main reason why this is a group and why it's called Decolonizing Judaism, so what that name means is, and it's decolonizing both senses. One, it's um, trying to identify and push away the aspects that uh, Jews culturally have been colonized, where, like, uh, Protestant European culture has been forced on us and all the things we've given up about our identity Mm. as we've assimilated um, or try to have been assimilated. Uh, and also uh, that uh, the state of Israel is a little colonial power with a colony of one in the state of Palestine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's absolutely awful. And trying to separate uh, being Jewish, Jewish and Judaism with supporting uh, that colonization. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this group, uh, first and foremost, the one thing we all have in common is we think the occupation of Palestine is absolutely abominable uh, and should never happen and needs to stop. Mm-hmm. And that it's totally disgusting that um, 
Jewish identity and the occupation has been uh, conflated so much by right-wing folks, including, of course, right-wing Jews, Mm -hmm. um, that it is now kind of commonly understood, I think, that it is anti-Semitic to criticize the occupation. And you have to be very careful, uh, which is, it's gross. It's totally awful. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's worse about it is that there's quite a few um, groups and people in the Jewish community, you know, in, in the U.S., um, who um, think this is actually the right way of things. Mm. Uh, and they're putting a lot of money and a lot of effort and a lot of propaganda into trying to make Jewish identity and the imperial uh, and fascist interest of the state of Israel the same thing. Mm. Um, so yeah, we, we want to, uh, our group is, we want to be a presence to that. There's, uh, what's called the Hillel Center, which is in many, uh, campuses, uh, across the country. And there's a Hillel Center, uh, in, at the University of Oregon. And their kind of, their big enterprise at this point is to instill Zionism and a righteousness of the occupation in Jewish students. Um, that's basically their mission statement. Um, and mm. so everything they do, um, they, they're, they're trying to talk up the inherent unalienable nobility of the state of Israel. They mm. talk about if, you know, if Israel didn't exist, then all Jewish people were at risk. Uh, they have this, the, the thing that you've been talking about recently is how the, um, uh, the, uh, BDS, I forget what the initials stand for, but the divestment movement for Israel where, um, uh, there, there's a list of companies uh, Israeli companies that are materially supporting the occupation, mm-hmm. and it's encouraging people to identify what products they have and avoid those products. Uh, you know, it's a classic divestment campaign. It's working. It's had some successes. Um, but uh, Hillel seems to have the position that, um, and they, they've said this recently, because uh, it was Hanukkah recently, and so they, they took the opportunity of Hanukkah, of all things, to, make, to say that uh, the divestment campaign puts... Uh, Jewish students at risk uh, because it encourages anti-Semitic uh, attacks, which is total bullshit. Yeah. And what's interesting is um, that the Hillel has become so extreme in their rhetoric and so divorced from what the actual situation is that a lot of Jewish students um, are uh, saying, like, I, you know, I don't feel like there's anti-Semitism on my campus and there's a BDS movement. I'm part of the BDS movement. <laughs> I have no, you know, what, what on earth are you talking about? Yeah. And the the statements are so out of sync. It's like, well, that 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 doesn't, you know, speak to, you know, what I'm experiencing at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but because Hillel's kind of has a monopoly on Jewish student life, mm-hmm. they just separate themselves from Jewish life completely. Um, and this has been this has actually been going on for ooh, thirty years, I guess, uh, but for quite a while. And then it just keeps ramping up and up and up. And so a lot of um, uh, you know, well, everyone in the decolonizing Judaism group, um, they want this group to happen because while they feel Jewish, um, they don't feel like there's a Jewish community where they can. Uh, express their um, uh, their progressive ideas right. and feel like uh, in order to be in the community um, they don't at the very least have to just shut up whenever the occupation is mentioned. Yeah. Um, although I should say uh, again just re- with this group I've been like coming back to uh, the local synagogue, uh, Temple Beth Israel and they're a lot better than I remember mm. in regards to Israeli nationalism 
and uh, talking about uh, the Palestinian people. Okay. It hasn't come up much, but when it has, it's like, wow, this is not... It's always been at um, very qualified. Hmm. And the rabbi, at least, has explicitly said that she is not in support of the occupation the cool. couple of times. So that's, that's good. Yeah, that's great. Um, but there's still... There's a lot of people in the congregation who... You know, and and it, it's brave of her to say that because she could get fired. Yeah. Because there's enough... I know there's enough people... Uh, uh, in that congregation, uh, where if they wanted to, they could make make that a problem. Um, and of course, at the University of Oregon campus with Hello, that, that's the only group uh, speaking on behalf of Jewish people. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it, it wants to be a campus. You call Julian wants to be a campus group to like be an alternative voice. It also wants to be a community group to yeah. get together sexual Jews. And then there's political stuff. One thing, and the other thing is just. Um, we're trying to figure out a way to interact with what we feel is our culture, but the religious stuff for many of us is a barrier or like we're interested in some of it, but a lot of it is very regressive <laughs> in form at the very least. Um, and in order, and they want to participate wholeheartedly. They don't want to like have to clench their teeth every time they say a prayer or something. Right. So we also want to figure out uh, like kind of humanist services or like. Um, alternate prayers where, you know, people can, like, you know, say them mm-hmm. uh, enthusiastically. Uh, there's also, so Yiddish is a dying language. Mm-hmm. One of our members is fluent in Yiddish. Wow, uh, cool. And wants to teach us as quickly as possible. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> um, so we, we, we've just gotten started, but we're, we try to have, like, little Yiddish sessions every time we meet. Um, so, yeah. And it's also, it's just, an, it's a lovely group of people. Um, and it's, um, it's sort of like the asexual group in a way. It's, it's nice to have, um, a group with an identity I share and mm-hmm. I can't, I don't have to worry as much about, um, if I say something, I know they'll get it. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to, you can be more relaxed. Right. Yeah. yeah and totally. I can, you know, you know, we can make nerdy rabbi jokes and stuff and it's all good. <laughs> I mean, what a difficult, fraught issue, because how painful is it to have been wandering and wanting a state for so long, mm-hmm. and then to have the Holocaust, and then to have an Israeli state created, and then to have it be fascisty? Yeah. Like, you know, like, fasc- like that's, like, that, the, that amount of, like, mm-hmm. depth of pain and difficulty in so many, there's just so much to that, you know what I mean? I mean, it's, it is... The, the, the story of the modern state of Israel is one of the most complicated political subjects <laughs> yeah. there are. Because um, there's so... It, it, it's rapidly changed and it's bottled up in like thousands of years of history. Um, but, I mean, the, 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 simple, the, the simple thing is the way the Palestinian people have been treated by the state of Israel is horrendous. Yes. Um, and you don't need complicated history or, you know, you know, deep political knowledge to recognize that, you know, crowding a whole bunch of people into a tiny area and refusing them even passports, the ability to leave, uh, is, is completely inexcusable. Yeah. Um, and the, the history of like the state of Israel as like a bastion in the last place, you know, Jews could go for... Uh, safety, I don't think that's true anymore. It might have been true when it was created. Like, right after World War II, the idea, I mean, that, you know, anti-Semitism 
like like state anti-Semitism, where uh, where trying to enact genocide could rise again, was very real. I think that's less real now, although still a possibility. But there's other options in Israel, mm. mm-hmm. um, and the Israeli state itself uh, is now and has always been only a interest in Western, particularly U.S. imperialism mm-hmm. as a military base. Yeah, I mean, the IDF just. Israeli defense forces are just so horrific and scary. Yeah. The stories, like, the stories of how some of those Palestinians are being treated and kids are being treated and stuff. It's like if you can hear that and defend that's that state structure mm-hmm. that's causing that. It's like in a I don't want to say defense, but as a different course perspective. So I went on the uh, birthright or Tiglit trip. Mm-hmm. which is uh, totally a Zionist enterprise, but what is it? It's, it's a free trip to uh, 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 young Jewish people to Israel mm-hmm. for, what was it, like eight days or something like that. I forget how many days it is now. <laughs> um, but And I, I, I went at the last possible year for me, um, and I thought, okay, if I, just, if I don't spend any tourism money, I'll, I'll just call it morally questionable. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was actually really personally very moving experience and it made me want to much more reconnect with my Jewish identity because there was a lot I was seeing that wasn't awful and that was worth salvaging. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that really impressed me, so part of this trip, what they do is for security reasons, I, I, I did air quotes, but it's actually, I mean, it really is for security reasons, um, all, it's not that big of a threat, they have three soldiers assigned to each trip, uh, or depending on the size. But the soldiers, because Israel has mandatory military dis- uh, per, um, conscription, are all the same age as the people there. They do that on oh. purpose. Um, and uh, they're not in uniforms or anything. And it's actually, and, and again, this is on purpose, it's a great way to spend some time with Israelis. Mm. And like, how is your life? What's going uh, How are things? And so they're soldiers, so they have certain, you know, things that they can't can say and can't say. Um but, you know, I, I, I made a point of talking with all of them. And something that really impressed upon me that I don't think a lot of Americans in general realize about Israel is they have been in a, certainly mentally, and uh, to the extent it's true physically, varies, they've been in a state of siege for like three generations, unbroken. Mm. Um, there is constantly the threat of war or actual war, or they're engaged in uh, some kind of, um, guerrilla warfare. Um, and literally, I mean, the, 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 the children are taught and their parents and their grandparents were taught growing up. Um, and it's not entirely false. It's kind of true that they're surrounded by neighbors who want to destroy the country. Um, that, and the country is so small that like they could get bombarded within minutes of a, a war being declared. Cause there's, you know, they're in range of artillery um, or some kind of ballistic missiles from all their neighbors. Um, it, unlike the United States, it would not act, it is completely feasible in a military sense to wipe out the state of Israel in a day. There's that, I mean, I mean, it, it, there's a lot of military power in that area. Now, Israel has most of it, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you can't stop a bomb from falling right. um, or an artillery shell from being launched, sort of. The IDF is trying and so that's why Israel has nukes and no one else in the area is allowed nukes. I mean, it's this whole thing. But, but what I'm getting to is the siege of the Israeli citizen is that they are constantly under the threat of death. 
Um, and also because of, um, you know, various conflicts over the years, every single Israeli person knows someone who's been killed in conflict, um, a friend or family member, often multiple times. Mm. Um, the entire country for generations has been living with post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. I mean, it's not even post. They're currently living in a state of trauma. Right. Um, and this has profoundly affected, and again, a way I don't think is fully appreciated by Americans, uh, has profoundly affected the way they live their daily lives and how they make their um, decisions. Uh, again, occupation completely inexcusable. Like, you can be afraid for your own safety and not, you know, screw over other people in defense of it. Um, but the, the fear they have, the basis of it, mm, but the fear they have is real. And it is... Um, like, so part of the BDS thing is an actual material threat to some degree on the stability of the Israeli state because of, you know, they, they, they depend on exports for their economic livelihood uh, of, um, of manufacturing and uh, technological stuff. And if people stop buying those products, that's going to, uh, for one thing, make it harder to fund the military <laughs> that everyone thinks is what's keeping them alive day to day. Um and so what looks like paranoia about the BDS stuff in a lot of ways is, but the, the, basically they're so used to reacting with fear about every threat or problem. Mm -hmm. That's kind of all they know how to do now, mm -hmm. in a political sense at least. Mm -hmm. And there's a, there is a left in Israel, and it is active, um, but, they're, uh, but they're besieged by their own country people who think that, you know, if, if you are not totally in support of, at very least, the militarism, uh, then you are a threat to yourself and your neighbors, and you are weakening and endangering their safety. <laughs> fear is so powerful and so dangerous, you know? I mean, fighting fear, you know, mm -hmm. in the class that we taught, and in the more and more research I do, just talking about how do we improve our current movement, mm -hmm. I think fighting fear is, like, top priority in a lot of ways, because it makes people crazy mm -hmm. and it makes people paranoid and it makes people shut down and like yeah. gives creates blinders you know so it's that's that's i've never really thought about israel that way yeah no that's, i it's not something you see in the papers really um and it's just so con it gets like three generations this is just how they live yeah how do you write an article about that <laughs> um and then i mean and then i mean the palestinians same only yeah worse yeah it, it, it <laughs> is and, and, and unfortunately because they didn't let's talk to palestinians um uh my mother has been on a project uh called the compassionate listening project where um she's it's the goal basically is to connect israelis with palestinians that they've participated in their trauma <laughs> and get them to just talk to each other in a compassionate way uh and that's it there's it's not they're not trying to pass any measures making laws they're just trying to get people to sit next to each other and not see each other as enemies. Or it's just, at least it's humanizing. Absolutely. You know? Um, and so... It's, th yeah, it's yeah. so easy to dehumanize. You can't hurt mm -hmm. somebody like that if they're human to you. And through, I would like to think. Yeah, so through that, she's, you know, been in Palestine and talked a lot with Palestinians. Um, I won't speak for her, and that was just secondhand experience, so I won't even try to relate that. But it is worse. <laughs> yeah. yeah um, as, as bad as the Israeli stuff is, at least they can have regular food and water. They can leave the country. Uh, they have meaningful political impact in their, well, 
depends on what kind of political. At least they have a government that they can actually participate in. Although, if you want the occupation to end, uh, there's no place for that <laughs> in, in the government. Um, but and the Palestinians have like basically shelter, and then everything else is day to day. And there's nothing that they can really do about it. Um, it's it, because they they don't have any um, political pull with Israel. That's why, and I'm very sympathetic, even though um, I'm a pacifist and believe very powerfully in the efficacy of nonviolence. Violence is their only way of even getting attention. Um, I mean, at least when uh, they throw rocks at tanks, or you know, um, I mean. That, that, I mean, that's the big thing. A lot of the stuff is just, like, throwing off tanks. They they're not even attacking, like, settlements anymore. Um, but, th so, th the only way they can anyone to get pay attention to them is say, like, hey, our water's been cut off, is if they do something uh, that'll get um, Israeli to respond in force. Mm -hmm. um, so, and it, so what I was going to is, so, what we can do here, like, I, I, I mean, I, it's really hard to see how advocacy can stop the occupation. You know, you know, certain, you know, people being aware of it certainly is one thing, but the only thing like advocacy can do is say, "Hey, like hypothetically, every Jew in the United States wants you to stop the occupation of Israel. Israel's not going to stop it. I can't see that happening. Like even you know, it's like, okay, fine. Well, you're all safe in the U.S., but you know, we got our shit to do here." So screw you guys. Mm -hmm. um, and the only thing that we can do really is withdraw the support that makes the occupation possible. Mm -hmm. um, which, which is quite a bit. I mean, that's actually the way the occupation ends is if the Israeli military can no longer, like, actually do it. Yeah, it's no longer um, support. Yeah. So, but that's, I mean... That would be attacking the state of Israel. I mean, not physically, but in a, in no, a economic I mean, material, sense. Material, economic sanctions yeah. are real and real dangerous. Yeah, and 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 that—that's what it is. And and so again, that kind of, kind of part of the decolonizing Judaism thing is, and a big part of that is getting the moral support with that, which means getting you know, you know, the 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 Jewish people in the United States to no longer think that their fate is intrinsically tied with the state with of Israel. Israel. Yeah, I, freaky things are happening with connections between the alt right and Zionists. Yes, it's very disturbing and weird. And then that connection is causing I've seen a few pretty kind of anti Semitic things around leftist circles. Yeah, mm -hmm. you know, so there's mm -hmm. some anti Semitic things. Then like that is also shitty. So like that, that tying the state of Israel to Judaism has negative effects in many different ways. Oh, it, yeah, I mean, in lots of different ways. And it, it makes Jewish people less safe. Yeah. Um. Absolutely. Um. And I I think, from what I've observed, at least locally, and then stuff, I think the anti-Semitism on the left is a little overblown. I think some people are very uh, sensitive about that for various reasons, but it does exist. Mm -hmm. Um. And the, I, I, I consider, like, support of the state of Israel on the right also anti-Semitism. <laughs> because in, in most cases, they don't give a fuck. Excuse me. I know this is on the front, but yeah. 
Um, they, they, they do not give one shit about the actual Jewish and Israeli people in Israel. Mm-hmm. They want their military outpost and for the uh, far-right religious folk, they want their uh, state of Israel because that's one of the preconditions for uh, Jesus' second coming. Mm, weird. Which is a thing. And it's quite common in evangelical circles. Mm. So they don't... And, and they some just people, speed that up. And some Jesus, people will say, at? like, and a war needs to happen in Israel mm-hmm. in order for that and for Jesus to come. So they're actually <laughs> totally fine with escalating tensions. It's stupid because it says very, Jesus says very specifically that you're not going to know when it's going to happen. Right. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take everybody by surprise. So, like, don't, you, can't, you can't try and set up the conditions yourself. Yeah, you know well, I, mean? I, so it's I think there are like, all sorts of reasons why that's ridiculous. Well, I mean, there's but, lots of, but, you know, theolo- yeah, theologically, Absolutely. as a Christian, yeah. it's like, he says very specifically, like, you'll see these things happening, mm-hmm. but you're going to surprise. Like, we can't, we can't try and force the apocalypse by, like, setting up the preconditions for it, especially when, like, there's real-world consequences being like, that means we're supporting fascists. Like, that's, that's ridiculous when people yep. try and make those sorts of arguments. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and fash will support fash, mm-hmm. you know, so like they'll figure out a way. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, the um, at the moment, um, the so like you know, um, 80% of uh, evangelicals voted for Trump, and they're like basically, in terms of demographics, one of his most solid supporters at the moment. And there's like this evangelical advisory council to the president, um, and it's um, the, the the people who want the occupation to end right now have effectively no influence in U.S. foreign policy. Right. Uh, there are some senators, uh, including our own Senator Merkley, um, who uh, are against it, uh, but they're few, and a lot of them, um, and they're so nervous about the massively funded. Um, uh, pro-Israeli lobby um, and about being called anti-Semitic um, that it's very difficult for them to make any kind of opposition. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so part, so again, part of the decolonizing Judaism group is creating um, a, a moral authority that other people can launch out to. It's like, okay, so here are Jews who are saying the occupation's bad mm-hmm. and you can criticize the state of Israel not being anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. We totally kind of want to be the token Jews. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, and, and spread the idea, because yeah, we think there's actually like... a lot of Jewish people who didn't even know that's a thing you could think. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. or, or everybody's holding their tongue, because they know, you know, you know, like you feel like you have to hold your tongue in, right. in circles and just giving somebody permission yep. to be like, you know what, I really don't like Israel, but I do like being Jewish. So we're still kind of secret in that like we're not like advertising ourselves, because we're still figuring out exactly what we want to do. Mm-hmm. But I feel we're getting closer, and I, I, I hope real soon we're going to make our group public, and um, I'd like to cause a real fuss on campus. <laughs> <laughs> I want to get in a fight with Hillel, and I think everyone else does too. Um, awesome. So, yeah. That's great. Let's see. It is 59 minutes. Oh, excellent timing. Mm-hmm. Is there anything you want to say or bring up before... Closing. Closing statements? Um... Well, uh, we didn't talk about communism at all. We didn't. <laughs> Which is fine. I mean, I'm, you know, uh, but politically I consider myself a communist, and I, that's a whole discussion. I know this is anarchist post, but I do want to say that, because there's a lot of, because I, I was, I was, I, I'm a fan of the show, <laughs> um, and because I, I know you have interviewed some other communists before, um, I just want to say that I agree with a lot of what they did, and 
I'm the the world I ultimate I, I I most want to live in is a world without a state. Um, and I um I love that there are anarchists who are experimenting with non hierarchical, basically stateless organizing right now. Uh, I hope they are successful, and I want everyone who's interested in that to work with that. My fear is that. Um, as I think you know, Catherine, there's, it requires a pretty complex amount of skills in order to pull that off. And I, I just think that the, the great majority of um, people don't have those skills yet. Um, and as far as I know, the best way to do that is to have a temporary transitional socialist state where people gain those organizational and you know, uh, um, working skills so that they know learn how to organize themselves. So when, when state-owned, it's really publicly owned. Mm -hmm. uh, so all production is the proper common property. And what I would hope would happen is people will start figuring out how to organize themselves without the need for a larger hierarchical structure, and then they are allowed to do that. And then so like okay, if, if you know you you can request for resources if you need them, but you you go off and we don't need to tell you the state doesn't need to tell you what to do more. And then just piece by piece, the state disappears. Hmm. Um, but in the meantime, uh, someone to organize uh, resources and to uh, develop the education necessary for that and to do all the day-to-day -day business, just you know, make sure the food gets there and the electricity happens and all that, mm -hmm. will require a state temporarily. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I... Um... I see a lot of, talking to communists, I often see the communist revolution is just an anarchist revolution with extra steps. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just like, well, you can't do that, but we have some sort of state structures that are rapidly falling apart, and people mm -hmm. just have to jump in and start taking care of themselves, and we're learning mm -hmm. trial, it's trial by fire, unfortunately. Yeah. Like, it sounds, like, it sounds nice. I don't think mm -hmm. it's feasible for us to be able to actually, at this point, ever have a socialist state. I think things are going to pretty much collapse. And, well, so, so my fear is it collapses, and then it's going to become, like, whoever has the biggest guns makes the rules. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, now, in, like, because the, the, the Communist Labor Party that I'm a member of, uh, we're doing the dual power thing, which has had various definitions over the years, but basically... Like trying to get people to um, organize themselves so so they're filling the needs that capitalists lacks. Mm -hmm. But basically, what you're talking about, what mm -hmm. the neighborhood activist pro uh, collective is doing, mm -hmm. um, if that's how the revolution happens, I'm totally fine with that. With basically people like, well, if you're not going to feed us, we're going to feed ourselves, and fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and if the you know police want to do anything about it, then we'll just you know give them the finger. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I mean, that would be my, that's actually my ideal scenario. Like, mm -hmm. the less state we need, the better. Mm -hmm. um, and, <laughs> but I think there are a lot of people, and it's going to take, are, are in the habit of just fulfilling the role a state gives them, and they're going to be, there needs to be the security and the infrastructure for them to take the risk of stepping out of that. I feel like so many more communists I talk to are pretty much just anarchists with a different idea of how to get to anarchism. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which is, um, <laughs> which is cool. It's like when we're talking, yeah. which is, which is mm -hmm. interesting. And I, I don't feel like, I feel like I keep not finding, 
like the people I'm talking to, like not finding actual status. Yeah, like where are the tankies? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think I, I think I found one. I think mm-hmm. I found a tanky to talk to. <laughs> so, um, but it's um, and which I like. I like hearing yeah. that, you know, because mm-hmm. that's exactly the thing. Is like I think in the end, we really a lot of us really are on the same page, but the 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 devils and the details. But those mm-hmm. details are going to become more and more clear just sort of ha- as we move forward. We're going to have to adapt to circumstances. And I think we're seeing potentially what's going to happen could, the, mm-hmm. could go a couple different ways, right? So it's like, for me, maybe it's sort of the black flag nihilist streak. It's like, well, <laughs> everything's falling apart right mm-hmm. now. And we don't have time to try and instate, instigate mm-hmm. uh, any sort of like socialist structures before people need to just like, get get on it and taking mm-hmm. care of themselves like immediately um but i think we're both on the same page that what the main problem right now is retraining how people yes function and are empowered to take care of each mm-hmm. other and each other's lives and care about each other mm-hmm. you know, like those are the things that you're talking about like socialism as a training tool mm-hmm. to get people to be able to take care of themselves and we're saying like we just got to get people to take care of themselves straight away yep. but either way that takes a lot of education and work absolutely the the revolution is not uh you know uh guns and burning down buildings the revolutions is workshops workshops for (laughs) sure yeah training training yeah and And the thing is that um uh marx and lenin kind of said the same thing they they they, they thought so uh, traditionally like you know way back in the like the the early 20th century the 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 guns and violent revolution stuff was talked about, and eventually that's you know kind of how it happened. Although you're not going to have a revolution without the workshops. They did a lot of workshops too, <laughs> in various things. Um, but there was the idea which was validated that once you destroy the autocracy, you get you get rid of the oppressive government. The other oppressive governments aren't going to like that, <laughs> and they're going to use their means, including physical force, mm-hmm. um, you're going to use any means possible to wreck your yeah. revolution and make what you're trying to do fail and, re- and, and recreate a capitalist state. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's what's happened. In fact, that's what happened with the Soviet Union, although it took 80 years. Um, but through, because uh, they were forced, in order to prevent an invasion, to have such a huge military buildup that it was, uh, you know, taking food out of people's mouths. Right. Um, and then also economic sabotage, where in the end, and that's kind of why the, 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 the Soviet Union imperialism took place, because they had to, you know, occupy countries. Otherwise, the Western powers wouldn't let them trade with anyone. Well, they weren't letting them trade with anyone, so they had to occupy the people in order to get resources to yeah. keep the state going. And um, the, the tension between, like, the statists and, like, the, the, the non-statists and communists is there are uh, certainly pretty old guard folk at this point who think that was the right way of doing things, and you need a strong state to yeah. resist ca- uh, capitalism, yeah. and that was the only way to do it. Well, obviously failed. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, you say obviously, and I say obviously. Lots of people say yeah. obviously, but there are definitely people who think that's like, well, we just didn't do it quite right. And it's like, yeah. well, you... And, and then you, there's stuff behind that. And I'm also one of, the, one of the people who say, well, it wasn't done quite right, but one of the things done not quite right is... Well, that's that's a whole other. I mean, that's thing. a whole. I guess. Yeah, I have I have come across the idea with other anarchists where it's like anarchists really honestly are generally very empathetic mm-hmm. and like can be 
like maybe it wouldn't be such a bad idea to have some tanky friends. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like we, you know, like really a lot of really, yeah. re- a lot of really nice people that like really, mm-hmm. we, you know, we have this like utopian view that everybody can get along and it can be beautiful mm-hmm. and and it's it's like not necessarily, you know, as long as you don't end up, you know, turning on us and killing mm-hmm. us and because we're, we're if if there if I like seeing this mm-hmm. progression of yeah. communists that I know kind of. Um, becoming more or not you know the communists i know sort of talking about like well we have the same we do have the same end game mm-hmm. um i don't know it's hard the communist anarchist thing is one of those things that's gonna go on it's it is to... i'm actually um and i would like to work with the neighborhood anarchist collective i've gone to uh, a couple meetings mm-hmm. and uh the our, our local communist labor party chapter is very provisionally working about, you know, doing uh, a shared project of some kind. I can't go into the details. It's all very up there right now. But I can't say that there, I think there's a mutual interest to work together because what we want is so similar. Mm-hmm. And I think, although I feel the minority of this, the way how we get to get to get there is actually compatible. Like I said, if people want to do their anarchist thing, I'm totally for that. Even if we have a revolution and like a social state afterwards, I think that social state will fail the moment it tries to shut down anarchist um, efforts. Huh. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> t- we're I mean we're doing all this work to empowering the people, and you have to have an empowered right populace. Yep. Um, but it does come down to communication, talking to each other, and training and education. Mm-hmm. You know, and talking to each other is the hardest part. Talking to each other is hard. <laughs> yeah. It is hard. <laughs> you don't do it enough. But we're doing it right now. Yes. Awesome. Um, well, thank you for being on the show. Yep. I'd like to be interviewed. Best luck in your future endeavors. Thank you. Yeah, you too. I'm excited about all the projects you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. <laughs>